Good afternoon, everyone, and I'm fired up today. I'm David Meltzer, and I'm here with my other Michael in the house. Michael, unbroken, thank you so much for joining me on Office Hours. Man, so excited. My favorite part of my Wednesday, probably even my week, David. We get to meet with these incredible human beings who are changing the world. Let's roll. It's time to rock and roll, by the way, no pun intended, because our first guest <laughs> is Rockwell Felder. They call him The Rock. We all know The Rock. This is The Other Rock, co-founder and CFO of Squadcast, squadcast.fm. Welcome to Office Hours Rock. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. I'm super excited because podcasting is such a big part of my life, and it was almost one that I missed out on because I didn't understand uh, the significance of how you can build a community with a podcast and not just build a community, any type of community, but build a community of people who literally are willing to help each other and know people who can help each other. And six years ago, Super Bowl, so a little more than six years now, uh, I was blessed to meet a guy named AJ Vaynerchuk. And AJ ran a sports agency called Vayner Sports. And I was a fairly renowned, legendary sports agent who was going to consult and help AJ uh, and all of a sudden, as we're speaking in the Nike Lounge at the Super Bowl six years ago, everybody started getting all giddy and worried. And they're like, oh, my God, Gary V is here. Gary V is here. And I'm looking around for like some superstar athlete that I've never met. And I literally turned to AJ and I said, hey, AJ, I go, what's a Gary V? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, it's my brother. I was like, oh, awesome. He goes, he needs to meet you. And I met Gary Vee, gave him advice about the Vayner sports side of things. Of course, we had a ton of people in common. And Gary's like, hey, what can I do for you? And I said, well, you know, I'm trying to understand what you do. And if I understand what you do, I'll know how you can help me. And he said, well, you know, I used Digital Media in order to build my brand. He said, you know, I'm a big fan of your radio show, Dave. Because uh, I was with New York Jim Layritz at the time, Sports Blender Syndicated. He's a Yankee. So, you know, Gary knew exactly who I was, which was weird that I didn't know who he was. And he literally said, You need a podcast. And I told him at the time, I was like, Dude, there's 200,000 podcasts. Why would I? I have a successful radio show. Why would I create a podcast? And he explained to me basically what Squadcast is about. He explained to me, how the differentiator of building the right community and what it can do for you and your mission. And so I trusted him and he helped me and, you know, blessed today to have one of the biggest podcasts in the world with one of the bigger communities in the world, especially of high end empowering people. And it just blows my mind uh, because Squadcast is so aligned with the beliefs that we had six years ago, by the way, I think there's over 3 million podcasts now. So I was wrong when I told him there was too many podcasts already, which is a whole nother limiting belief question. But how do you look, you're in this deep. How do you look at the value of community utilizing podcasting? Yeah. And that's such an awesome story that you mentioned, Dave. And it's funny. It seems like we got into the podcast game around the same time. That's when we started Squadcast about seven years ago. And we really came to it, my co-founder Zach and I, as fans, uh, proponents and believers in the medium and the content. But I tell you what, Dave, what we figured out very early on once we uh, 
got acclimated with the rest of the podcast industry and 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 uh, it was the community. We we came for the content, but we stayed for the community. That's one thing that was super apparent to us that all the creators and the companies that we really looked up to and wanted Squadcast to be like or be the leaders that that these folks were or or take their lead, I, sh- I should say. Um, it was all about community focused, and so that's really how Squadcast has built its brand, its reputation, and relationships within the space is just being where our, our community is at and, and growing with them. And I think that's what makes podcasting so cool is it is still a relatively new industry. And so everybody's kind of figuring it out and willing to help. And, um, you know, we're kind of going through a similar struggle. One of the things that we also learned is podcasting can be a little bit of a lonely game. It's very collaborative, but oftentimes you're kind of alone and you're speaking to an audience that you don't know, you don't get that feedback immediately. So the community really provides that type of resource and, um, way for folks to just grow together. And it's been what we've, what's kept us, I think, uh, dancing to work every Rock, I absolutely love that, man. And I would never have met David if not for podcasting. I never would have met half of my community, wouldn't be able to build my my business as much as I have without this medium that I love and I'm probably borderline obsessed with, just to be honest with you. I, I consume podcasts like most people watch television shows. It, I think I have a problem. Um, what, I'm, what I'm wondering, though, because you have you have so many podcasts they just don't know where to begin. People get stuck and they're like, well, audio quality is not that good. And should I do YouTube? Do I do this? Do I do that? What is the advantage of Squadcast, of the community, of the network, of the platform, and of what you've built to help people, especially at the beginning, um, do this effectively and appropriately? Yeah, I think a lot of us come into it with the similar mindset as David, where it's like, oh, there's so many. What's the point? How am I going to stand out? But what we found is it's still early days, even though, yes, there are quite a bit. Um, But there's a lot you can do to help yourself stand out from the rest of the shows in your category, taking your quality seriously, having a plan, being serious about it to to execute for the long term. It's really no different than any other business where you're going to have to grind it out. You're going to have to wear a lot of hats. You're going to have to deal with some uncertainty and hopefully be able to build a team to help you grow. I mean, it's it's really like a micromedia company is what we've call, called a podcast. What's great about a podcast, though, is that it doesn't take too much money um, to really put your put your best foot forward and have a high quality show and that's what we specialize in with squadcast we help folks record remotely in studio quality that's audio and video so really you can be anywhere you're at in the world and connect with somebody else who doesn't have to be in the same room with you but you're both going to look and sound amazing because of the recording technology with squadcast and that recording technology has a huge roi to it and you know coming from the early days of podcasting like you know when you wasn't as uh accessible virtually and so i was traveling um the audio especially um the saving of the audio making sure the audio is on and you know you have so many signature features uh from obviously being in the genre seven years ago that you must have paid the dummy tax on what if (laughs) (laughs) and i i gotta tell you real quick two story man i i spent a ton of money to go down to miami i had Mr. Ross of the Dolphins. I had Mike Tannenbaum. I flew in my crew from California, right? And so there's hotels, there's, you know, very big expense. And on the flight back, Justin, who's now the head of my media, you know, he's 12 years into working with me. His face is whiter than I've ever seen. I'm like, oh no. He goes, oh yes. I go, what? He goes, I forgot to turn the uh, audio on. He had no no audio. 
He goes, Dave, you, I, I probably spent close to $50,000 on the oh, trip. No. He goes, you just spent $50,000 for some good B-roll. Because <laughs> we had no audio. So, you know, you, what, you know, I love about Squadcast is the premium features that you have to stop the waste of money um, and to make sure, because there is a difference to have high quality. What are some of those progressive uh, signature features that you have? Yeah, I think that's really what we've uh, done to help innovate in the space here. Because honestly, when I was first approached with this problem and, and the idea that became Squadcast with, by uh, my co-founder, Zach, who's a high school friend, I was like, this doesn't already exist. This doesn't sound that wild. But it's a it's an incredibly challenging problem to record audio separately and video now in high quality and then also upload that to the cloud. Now, where the progressive uploads comes in is uh, we didn't want there to be any opportunity for files to be uh, disrupted or lost or anything like that. I think that was like one of the other big problems with uh, recording remotely is um, folks were just worried. They were, it was incredibly filled with anxiety and uncertainty. And so we just really wanted to eliminate that from the equation and take all the heavy lifting happening in the background so that they can just focus on having a great conversation. Creating the content's a difficult enough job. You don't need to be a tech expert. And that's where we come in and specialize. And so the, our recording and uploading technology is patented. And it really just gives that the end user an experience that no, everything's just working as expected, that they don't have to worry about anything. As soon as they hit stop, those recordings are there, available, able to preview, download, import into your editing software. It's all ready to go. I love that. And as David, a very similar situation. It cost me $50,000, but it cost me a lot. Um, I had someone who had come on the show. And by the time that we finished recording, I realized that I was not plugged in. And so <laughs> these things do happen. Um, do. I, I, I love the redundancy rock because I think that's the most important thing. I, I've recorded now 700 episodes of my podcast, and I cannot speak highly enough about how important redundancy is. Audio quality is great, but at the end of the day, if you don't have the file, you're you're definitely in trouble. Um, I'm wondering, because I want to go back to the community aspect. This can be an incredibly lonely road. Mm -hmm. How is it that Squadcast differentiates itself from other providers that are similar to you? Yeah, a big part is the community. So again, we just took the lead from folks that we saw in the space that were really leading the charge and doing uh, good work. And then we also uh, hired our community manager, Ariel Nissenblatt, who's building out her own reputation as like, I swear, I don't think anybody loves podcasting more than her, listens to podcasts more than her. I know it sounds like you might be challenging her, Michael, but uh, she, I think she's got you beat, man. She's pretty incredible with that and really taking our community to the next level. Folks know that they have a place where they can, yes, it's all about, we're, we're all about like doing stuff remotely, but we're also about bringing people together and making them feel less lonely and knowing that they're not doing this on their own. And we provide them with resources and uh folks to just contribute to their journey. Yeah, I think that's a really big part beyond the creation side of it and the tech, the, the technical side of it, the collaboration of introductions to ideas, guests, techniques, all the different areas. You know, there's an old saying by Bob Parsons at uh, GoDaddy, you know, if you love what you do, it will tell you all its secrets. And mm. when we get a group of people together, that love what they do and share a passion and a purpose of podcasting in the community. Uh, it's amazing how many secrets are told. And so there becomes a market advantage and there becomes even 
more of an aggregation compounding and acceleration of that passion or uh, that that why um, for you what's your greatest passion I know you come from the accounting background and you made quite a great jump into this more creative role than basic accounting uh, but for you what what rocks your world no pun intended rock yeah I think I just love businesses. I'm fascinated by business. I'm fascinated how they're all so unique and how they you know, bring bring value into the world. I love the strategy and tactical aspect of it. So I think that's what's really what I love about being an entrepreneur and a, a business owner is like, I just feel like it's my way of expressing my creativity. I've never viewed myself as a creative person because I always viewed it as like painting or drawing or music or something like that. And then once I got into the business world, and especially this experience with Squadcast, I really started to feel like I was flexing those creative muscles. And again, it's just, uh, I think I'm blessed because I uh, get to work in such an interesting and exciting space that folks really value what we do. And so that makes it worth it. I'm just glad you had the amazing content that you had. I told my crew, I'm like, look, if the guy sucks, the best part about this is me and Michael and Broken. We're going to be telling everyone we had the rock on our podcast. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we weren't going to lose on this, on this interview, but you uh, gave and brought more than we ever expected. We obviously have a great passion for what you're doing and want to support it because there's nothing better than a great community of enthusiasts of podcasting. If you want to join a community of people who want to help each other, know people that can help each other to accelerate, aggregate, and compound the success that you can have and enjoyment that you can have because it's okay to have a podcast that's just for your enjoyment. It's a lot of fun. Better than video games, I think. That's why Absolutely. I do so many. But anyway, Squadcast community, squadcast.fm. Join the community. Be collaborative, creative and have a lot of fun. You can make a lot of money, help a lot of people, and have a lot of fun with your podcast. It takes people like Rockwell Felder, The Rock, here on Office Hours. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Great Thanks, interview, man. man. Congratulations. Thanks, <laughs> hey, Mike, now you can tell people we had The Rock on. We can. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's your guest today? Me and Meltzer brought The Rock on. It was, it was crazy. Really? How'd you get Can't him? get the guy. <laughs> exactly. We're amazing. Well, ho hopefully uh, got him here. We'll live up to the rock. Head of research at Rose Park Advisors. Thank um, you so much for joining us. Thanks, David. I'm actually a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. I, I was the head of research at Rose Park Advisors, but I left that a few months ago. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Very good. So we'll have to make sure that we have that up. So I have research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School Center of Public Leadership, but they didn't That's change right. that in the thing. Um I'm very transparent when uh, my excellent team is less than excellent. But more importantly than me not knowing what I'm talking about, you do have a book, am I correct? I do. It's called Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. And definitely not your team's fault. It just happened a couple months ago. So I yeah, think that's it. <laughs> well, that's the problem. We're so booked out. It would probably all kinds of changes. We should ask for an update. Anyway, um, look, I'm huge, hugely interested in politics. And uh, obviously... The presidential side of things uh, has intrigued so many in the world. Um, you know, looking at this uh, area of how to make the best decisions uh, when you're at the highest level. I wrote a book called Game Time Decision Making, where I analogize all these sports people and how they make the decisions. One thing I've learned about decision making is prioritization. What makes a president uh, or picking a president is our prioritization of our what's important to us. 
Yeah, um, that's mm -hmm. how, how important is that in this idea? So it's absolutely it's critical, right? So what I'd say is there's two parts. One is there's the stuff we concentrate on all the time, and that's basically a debate. I think a lot of our elections are basically a debate about what matters to us, right? Should we care most about cutting taxes or social spending? Should we care most about right being tough on China or working with China? You could th those are like those are all debates about what what are our priorities should be and how should we execute on those priorities. But the second half of the issue, the one that we forget too often, and the one I kind of want to center in my book uh, to some extent, is that there's actually a lot of stuff that we all agree on, right? The president should not get us into a nuclear war. <laughs> we should yeah. not have the right. The, 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 almost the world, all of us. Yeah, almost, almost all of us agree. Yeah. But the world financial system should not collapse, right? Like these are things. And it turns out that when historians. We should all up, not die of a virus, right? They're, yeah, they're, they're like the, the big sort of the big wins. And sort of over the long historical perspective, that's how presidents get judged, right? Like, like, like the the really big things. Did Lincoln, you know, win the Civil War, win World War II, get us out of the Great Depression, reform the Civil Right? The really big things they really matter. And too much of our political debate forgets that that can go wrong, right? The the big things can go wrong, and we've spent so long getting them right that we've forgotten just how high the risks are of electing someone who just cannot do the job. Wow. One of the things that uh, I've always been fascinated by politics is that no matter what, it's going to be divisive. No matter what, there's always going to be two sides of the equation. And you often hear people say things along the lines of like, that's not my president. How, how as a society do we make more informed decisions about that so we can get to the place where we are like in agreement that we're being represented by something as a collective? So. So, so Michael, let me split that out, right? So the first is, that's what politics are like now, but it's not what they've always been like, mm. right? So in the 1950s, Dwight Eisenhower's campaign slogan was, you know, the most, the most banal but effective campaign slogan in history. It was, I like Ike, because... Everybody liked Ike, right? When, when he was deciding, when, when the, the right political insider said that the only question of the 1952 election was which party Eisenhower would represent in the White House. Because whichever one he decided on was going to nominate him and he was going to win. He was that popular. Mm. And you could say that's an aberration. But hey, in 1984, Ronald Reagan won 49 states. Wow. 49. Right? So... The current sort of incredibly hard, strong divide in American politics is, I, I mean, I would say it's, in a real sense, it's an aberration. For most of American politics, it hasn't been like that. For most of our history, the parties have not been as ideological as they are now. So right now, the most conservative Democrat in Congress is more liberal than the most liberal Republican, right? That you could, that you, you, we actually chart this you know, mathematically, and you just see that. There's just a divide between the parties that way. 20, 30 years ago, that was completely untrue. There was a lot of overlap between the parties. And so the biggest single shift in our politics over the, has been what we call sorting, where the parties have sorted ideologically and become much more separate than they used to be. And that's why it's so hard to work that people always say, oh, we should be bipartisan. And when you say that, I say you're kind of revealing that you don't get that modern politics is not like politics 30 years ago. Because bipartisan was okay, it was much easier back then, because there were a lot of things that some Republicans agreed with some Democrats on. And that's not really true anymore. And one of the other things that's changed over time as well, and 
you know, being someone who has, you know, studied decision making and prioritization and prioritization being the antidote to procrastination or feeling overwhelmed is stable data. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's very frustrating or difficult to make a decision when you're making decisions off of instable data. And because of our forms of information, uh, we're getting a lot of uh, unstable or, or data that's incorrect. And so how has that impacted our uh, ability to pick a president, which I see the most data being unstable and two people have completely different uh, truths uh, when it comes to picking a president? Yeah. So it's, so, you know, David, I don't, you couldn't be more right, right? There's, this is a huge problem for us when we think about so you and me, right? So people who aren't like senators or congressmen or members of the Republican National Committee, people who are not political elites, Right. How well do you actually know who a presidential candidate is? Not who they pretend to be on television, right? We know who they pretend to be on television. They're pretending to be the person they think is going to win the election. But what we want to know is who they actually are, because that's who we're going to get if this person actually wins. And so the data that we have is, you know, it's not just, is both, you know, both radically incomplete and might be deceptive because the people who are running are trying to pro to, to show us what they think we want that we want to see. Uh, in fact, this is that is the central question of my book is, is it possible for people like us, people who don't know the candidates personally, to actually put together enough data to make a good assessment as to whether this person can do the job? And the answer is that it is. But you have to look at the presidents differently than we always have before. Yeah, well, how how do you look at them then, yeah. right? Because I think that's the big question, especially as we head into what could arguably be the Super Bowl of elections, right? What are we looking for? How do we educate ourselves as an American people when we are in this place that, like you said, is kind of an aberration where we are facing so much divisiveness? Like, what do we need to be looking at so we can make the most consequential decision in the world? So the first thing is you got to understand that there are actually two kinds of presidents. And I don't mean good and bad, right? So what I call them is filtered and unfiltered. So a filtered president is someone who's been evaluated by the system. The people who have big roles, the people who are close to the, you know, the presidency, the people who know both what it takes to be president and what it and who the candidates really are, have looked at this person and said, yeah, you know, maybe they're not my favorite candidate, maybe they're not the best person for the job, but I'm go I'm good. Like, I'm okay if this person gets gets to be president of the United States. So my classic example of that is George H.W. Bush, right? George Bush, the father. So when he became president, he had been a member of Congress, director of the CIA, ambassador to China, chairman of the Republican National Committee, and vice president of the United States. Everyone in American politics knew exactly who he was. They knew exactly what they were getting. And they were okay with it. Some of them were really enthusiastic. Some of them weren't. But they, no, no one went, oh, God, this is going to be a disaster. So... People who are like that, who are what I call filtered, they tend to be good, but not great, right? They're good because they don't make the obvious mistakes that, you know, that you would just say, wow. You, you, see, Bi you see Biden is that way Bi too, right? Biden is the most filtered president in American history. So, okay, um, I just want to make sure I've got yeah. that right. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> That's so what I much thinking too. <laughs> like, like I have graphs in the back of my book where I like, I do the, you know, the chart where I chart how filtered different people are. And Biden literally, not metaphorically, broke the graph. Because <laughs> no, he, <laughs> he was he, serving, he was serving with people that were born in the 1800s. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so uh, the way I measure filtered is how many years do you spend in like a senior political office, 
And so the record for any president before Biden was 24 years. And Biden is 44 years, yeah. right? It's just a different category. Um, so so that's what a filtered president looks like. They can do the job, but they're not going to do the stuff that no one else could do would do that just turns out to be brilliant. Okay. Unfiltered presidents are gambles. They're either great or awful, but they're very rarely in the middle. So like step out of the presidency for a second, right? So I'm the board of I'm on the I'm on the board of a company and the company's in a lot of trouble and I decide I'm going to hire a new CEO. And so I bring in an outsider who's run a startup, who's really like a big name in the industry, who's very charismatic. Um and this person comes in and the first thing he does is get rid of the board that hired him and replace them with people who he's chosen to be compliant with his wishes. And then the second thing he does is he goes to that board and says, I'm going to stop making 70% of all my company's products. And the new board is like, no, 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 no don't do that. Like, like that, that's crazy. You, you should not do that. And he says, no, I'm going to do it anyways. And he does it. How do we think this story ends? Either great or poorly. Yeah, right. Most people are like, I'm not optimistic, right? Like, I don't right. have high hopes for this guy. Yeah. Well, that's Steve Jobs. Right. So it turns out that but most people who think they're Steve Jobs are not actually Steve Jobs. Right. Like, like they're a lot more common. They're a lot less common than people want them to be. And so the people who do this, who do what no one else would do, do either exactly what you just said. David. They do either great or they do poorly. Put that in a presidential context. And, you know, let's forget about like modern guys, although obviously Donald Trump is the ultimate unfiltered president. How about Abraham Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln spent his total national political career was two years in Congress before he became president of the United States. When he got nominated for the for the, by the for, to be the Republican nominee by the Republican Convention in 1860, he was so obscure the New York Times could not spell his name right. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, right. So, so this obviously this worked out. In my opinion, Abraham Lincoln is the greatest political leader anyone has ever had. But you wouldn't have guessed it would work out right like if you were in 1860 judging the candidates you would not have picked abraham lincoln you would have said this is completely irresponsible to nominate this guy so in our the first thing you got to do when we're trying to make this decision is decide do we want good but not a high degree of confidence that we got good but not great or do we want to take a risk in the hopes of getting great but where the odds are we're going to get a disaster and so once you've done that, the rest of once you've decided you've made one way or the other, the rest of my book is how do you, I'll say, I don't mind gambling, but I, don't, I, I like to wait, I like to cheat, is so if you're going to take this risk, how do we weight the dice to make sure that our odds of getting good or, or getting great are as high as possible? Yeah. And, and what's interesting, sorry, Michael, to interrupt real quick, is to me, having a law degree, being a lawyer, recovering lawyer, you know, I was a firm believer 30 years ago when I was in law school in the checks and balances, but the situational knowledge of how the political system works has really allowed the political systems as far as voting, electoral votes go, and judgeships over an extended period of time to be able to manipulate the checks and balances. So we have even greater risk today by taking the unfiltered president than we ever have because we don't have the same checks and balances because through situational knowledge experience of mostly electoral votes and of course the judges uh we've now lost a lot of the protection that we had yeah that's right the, the checks and balances don't work if the supreme court says well 
if you're from my party, I'm going to support whatever you do. And if you're not from my party, I'm going to oppose whatever you do. That's not a check and balance. That's just, right. a, mag that's just a magnifier. I find the interesting thing about, you know, the Supreme Court in the abortion pill was classic is that our checks and balances actually have evolved to just the complexity of our system, that there's so many variables that they can't just say, okay, this one, because now they have to look at all the drugs they want. And we almost get a checks and balances because of the complexity of our system, that there's not a siloed or segregated business model that says, you know, this rule is going to only apply to this company. And now I think it's a great example of there's a little bit extra protection in our system because of the complexity of our of our economy and the complexity of the world, which helps us. Yeah, I mean, the, the more complex the world gets, the more complex you as a thinker have to be to handle it. So there's a great psychologist named Dean Simonton who studied human performance, right, in many, many different domains. And what he found was intellectual complexity. So the ability of someone to, cognitive complexity, the ability of someone to think about the world as made up of lots and lots of different entities that have lots of different relationships predicts success really well. Actually, this strongly. He looked at generals and he found out that the cognitive complexity of the general was a stronger predictor of success in battle than the number of troops they had. Wow. That's amazing. So when, for the presidency, right, you want pe the, 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 for every problem and every difficult problem, there's an answer that is simple, obvious, and wrong. If you have one rule of that, for, that we are living a complex world, you want people who can think complexly about it, who are able to sort of understand that simple that most of the time there aren't simple one sentence answers to the problems that we have, and we need to think about what that uh, we need to be able to manage it in a world where you know every decision has three unanticipated outcomes that will ripple through 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 events and might be more important than the decision you thought you were making. And that's why this book is so important, because outside of whatever your political beliefs are or your alignment is, I think it's really important to understand not only the consequences of the decision, but how to make the consequential decisions uh, that can be applicable beyond the president's. But as far as timing and risk tolerance goes, we need to assess uh, whether a president is going to succeed or fail. And it sounds like uh, the approach that you've taken and the experience that you've had uh, is invaluable uh, for everyone as we have plenty of time now to assess our next candidates and find the best president for uh, what our values are and where we want to be. Ghanem, please promise me you'll come back. Uh, Ghanem Makunda, he, com. His book is called Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decisions in the World. And also check out his podcast, uh, which is World Reimagined. Um, and, uh, I think it's one of the most, if not most popular of the NASDAQ podcast. So thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. It would be my pleasure. Thank you. Awesome my friend. Friend. you David, I, I couldn't, yeah, help but I couldn't help but think we have a moral imperative. If you are a citizen of this country to read this book. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, that's why we're bringing these people on, right? Is that. Not everybody knows this type of information. And look, what's good about the information, it allows you to make the decision. It's just mm -hmm. giving you some criteria, some stable data that says, you know, like it's incredible. I love the fact of filtered and unfiltered presidents and it helps to mitigate risk. It's, and that just doesn't apply to president. It applies to businesses. 
yes. right? We have fil filtered CEOs and unfiltered CEOs. So true. Um, so it's re or employees in, in, in mid management. It, it all, it's so valuable a book like this, whether you want to apply it to presidential picking or an employee picking uh, or your wife, you, you got to have and know the con consequences uh, of doing so. All right. Positive and negative. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got uh, Stephen Smith in the wings, combing his hair. There he is. We caught him right where I wanted him. Co-founder and CEO of NOC. My wife's going to love this episode. Um, <laughs> treatmyocd.com. My daughter posted a picture while I was speaking. I was in uh, Virginia Beach speaking with Magic Johnson and Eckler and those guys. And they saw the post of my wife's and my daughter was baby, baby. I shouldn't say babysitting. My wife, my son's 13. My, my daughter, 24 year old was with my son, 13. And he has some great OCD attributes genetically inherited from me and my family for sure. But my, my daughter's like, I finally met someone more OCD than my dad and uh, took a picture of my son cleaning something. And, uh, and so I said, Oh, that makes me feel good. Um, <laughs> You uh, have done a lot of research, evidence-based uh, research on the treatment of OCD. And, you know, I want to start in a different place because I've learned through the years, uh, I come from a compulsive gambling father, uh, an OCD, completely OCD, genetically inherited and energetically inherited family to the point where, you know, especially academically, one of my cousins graduated top of his class from Harvard Med School and killed himself. And so I think a lot of people don't know consequences of OCD, that it's not just to a level of, you know, having to keep things in order or neat or whatever it is. Um, I have a question. Is it a matter of treating OCD, meaning there's a cure for it, like there is for a virus, or is it uh, being able to teach someone to utilize the superpower of consistency towards positive behavior? Is there new nuance anywhere within in the treatment that you in the evidence based treatment that you guys have? Yes, yes, um, and it's a, it's a great question. And OCD is chronic in nature, which means which means that you can manage it, but you can't actually cure it. Um, and so the way that OCD is treated actually it targets the the way in which OCD um, affects specific people. So people have um, these fears that they're called sometimes they're intrusive thoughts, but the fears are unwanted and they recur in someone's head. And to make the fears go away, uh, people do very specific actions called compulsions. And it's because they don't want the fear and, um, and they, the fear um, creates con considerable amounts of anxiety. And so the compulsion, though, although it alleviates the, alleviates the anxiety in the, in the short term, in the long term, it makes the, the anxiety worse and it makes the fear grow worse and increase in, in frequency until eventually the fear can completely take over someone and, and um, they can't function as a result. And then sometimes folks become housebound, they become severely depressed. And, and that's one of the reasons why people with OCD are 10 times more likely to die by suicide when left untreated. So the treatment, it teaches people how to accept uncertainty behind the fear. And it's a treatment that's called exposure and response prevention. So people are exposed to the fear and, um, and as opposed to using, instead of using a compulsive action to try to make the fear go away, they learn how to instead um, accept the uncertainty in that moment. And then they, so they respond to the fear in, in, a, in a productive manner. And over time, by preventing themselves from doing the compulsive behavior, 
they don't end up doing it anymore. And then they can end up just having that fear, accepting uncertainty and, and going forward throughout the day and that compulsion again, it does, it's not there anymore. So it, it, the other person doesn't have, um, you know, that driver behind the fear and then they make considerable progress. And so it, it's a very, very effective treatment. It's considered the standard of care um, for OCD, um, exposure response prevention, that is. And um, what we've done at NoCD is we've made that treatment more um, accessible um, for many people across the, the world. Stephen, I absolutely love that. And I, I have, like David, energetic and genetic uh, OCD in my family. I notice it in myself quite frequently. And because of exposure, this very thing you're talking about, I've been able to manage and navigate it effectively. One of the things that I love that you guys are doing is creating it and making it more accessible. You know, 97.5% of all people in the United States have a smartphone now, which is absolutely incredible. That's the vast majority of the population. Talk to us a little bit about what people can expect in the app and how it helps them on their journey while they're battling OCD. Sure. Um, so inside the NoCD platform, people can do live face-to-face -face sessions with licensed therapists from our network that specialize in OCD and the gold standard treatment, exposure response prevention. I um, mean, it's a chronic condition as mentioned. And so between sessions, that's oftentimes when you need help the most, right? And so, um, so inside the app between sessions, people can get support from different peer communities, different self-help tools. They can message their therapist asynchronously and they can even message what we call a member advocate, someone who has OCD like them, who, is, who has gone through treatment and has typically learned how to manage their condition um, in an evidence-based way. And so what we've done is we've made this treatment um, also more affordable because historically um, ERP therapy cost about $300 out of pocket for a 45 minute session. And the Atlantic, in fact, wrote an article about it um, about a handful of years ago. And so what we've done is we've partnered with insurance companies across the country. And so now 130 million Americans um, you know, can essentially access Snow City therapy as a covered benefit. So we've brought the price from $300 down to a copay um, for almost a third or a little bit over a third of, of the United States. Um, and, you know, we have aspirations to take that number further. Uh, in addition, the wait times are also a big issue. So historically, people would wait between seven months to two years on a wait list just to access a specialist. Um, and we brought that time down to um, about, I think, this month in particular, over 70% of people are able to access an ERP specialist within seven days. So, you know, our goal is to just really make sure that this population can get access to evidence-based care more easily and earlier on in their journey so they can get the help that they need. And we know by doing that, it's going to prevent people from becoming super severe. It can prevent, hopefully, um, you know, people from developing comorbidities in many cases that are, that are severe and, and um, we can make a positive impact. And whenever we have a behavioral treatment, a behavioral health treatment, especially, uh, Behavior aggregates, it compounds and accelerates. And one of the things about OCD is that at some level, I believe everyone has uh, OCD at some level, uh, and it's just a natural response to fear, um, but it aggregates, compounds and accelerates. Uh, being in the business and utilizing ERP, uh, at what level, especially as a parent, am I looking at, if I know, for example, that I'm like Michael, energetically and genetically, I've inherited uh, OCD at some level, you know, where do I find or when do I find the time to say, all right, it's not just my kids keeping everything neat. You know, what are some of the um, indicators that we should go ahead and at least seek medical assessment of OCD? 
Sure. So I, I'm not a clinician by training. However, I work closely with our clinical leadership team. And what they've always told me is that when OCD becomes um, disabling for a certain amount of time, then and there's this evidence-based scale that that the um, the clinical um, community uses to assess this, um, the the uh, the the severity of, of one's symptoms. When the symptoms become severe and, and they prevent people's ability to function, that's when it's considered um, diagnosable OCD. And so OCD is very interesting where, um, as you mentioned, like there are many different symptoms that people have, but to meet the diagnostic criteria, they have to be a certain level of severity. And um, it is, the condition is very, very misunderstood where in pop culture, it's defined as a personality quirk or an adjective used to describe somebody who's type A. But as, as um, you know, you mentioned here earlier, it's like, it's a very severe condition for a lot of people and um, it can be, you know, devastating the consequences. And so, you know, um, what happens is then people don't know that what their symptoms are actually are OCD because, you know, they don't fit that kind of cookie cutter definition of, you know, be, you know, having contamination fears or having, um, you know, we call perfectionistic fears. So um, this, the, the, the importance behind that kind of um, uh, the assessment. So from a symptom wise or assessment from a, um, a, a clinical standpoint is that it, it allows providers to assess for not just the, the, the fears that are commonly known, but also the, the fears that aren't as commonly known. So people who have relationship fears, um, sexual fears, uh, violent fears, religious fears, and these fears, you know, attack people's core values and character. And they're oftentimes um, very challenging to deal with. So lot, you know, point being is there's there, when people feel though, that, that high level of anxiety and they're distressed from these recurring unwanted thoughts, images, and urges, that's when it's time to go and seek help. And many times people don't feel comfortable disclosing the true nature of their fear, just given the embarrassing nature behind them. So, um, so parents can, can really look for some of those initial symptoms, um, the distress, you know, sometimes they'll ask, people will ask for reassurance consistently and that's a common compulsion. Sometimes people will search Google frequently. That's a common compulsion. If, and if you notice those compulsions, um, then it might make sense to go in and, and, and help someone um, just get an, a, a diagnostic assessment. Yeah, I, I love that, man. And I think so much of it really does come down to understanding the nature of it, where it comes from and how you interact with the world. I know that you yourself had some struggles with this. And obviously, most great ideas are born out of our struggles. Is it this very thing that has helped you in your journey? And if so, like, what was the jump off point for you? Because I, I fear that a lot of people will hear this kind of feel like maybe they need to seek help. But again, that fear is keeping them stuck. So where do you really okay. begin? Yeah, exactly. So I, I'll just briefly talk about my my personal background. I have OCD. I was misdiagnosed um, with it six different times. I went from uh, playing college football to a small school down in Texas where everything was going well down to rock bottom in six months because of the onset of this condition. Um, and in that journey, um, didn't really know where to go. And I was seeking care from an in-network provider who was giving me not only ineffective care, but harmful care. I learned that in mm -hmm. retrospect because I was misdiagnosed. And then when I, when I became housebound, I had stopped going to school, I stopped playing football. Um, I was just one day uh, desperately searching my specific fears online. And that's when I had that aha moment. I was like, wait, there are other people out there going through the same thing as me. And they define their symptoms as OCD. And I kind of had that head scratching moment too, because I thought OCD was just a personality quirk. Um, at that point, I was like, well, how do I go get better? And I learned that you had to you know, go and, and get a diagnostic assessment from a licensed therapist that had specialty training in both OCD and ERP and in the psychiatric community, which is not as known today, which needs to be more known is that there are very specific specialties for treatment. 
And, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you hurt your hand, you go see a hand specialist. Well, if you have a psychiatric condition, you need to see a specialist, too. So I had that diagnostic assessment, ended up getting diagnosed appropriately, had a, um, a great experience with with treatment, although it was challenging. I was able to get through this ERP therapy and had, you know, a, a, um, a life changing opportunity and to uh, to to uh, to get better. And, and and that's what we really did it for me. So. I'd recommend anyone listening to, to go in and, and to seek help and seek help from someone who has um, especially training in OCD and in this treatment ERP, and then to see a diagnostic assessment or to get a diagnostic assessment first. And that's the best place to start. Raising awareness, making it more affordable, treatmyocd.com. Stephen Smith, thank you so much as a co-founder and CEO of no CD. We appreciate you. Both Michael and I are going to be going to that website just to absolutely exactly what we've inherited. Uh, but thank you. Millions of people, over 130 million people commercially covered today and only more coming. Thank you for changing the world. Uh, come back and visit us again. Yes, awesome. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Last but not least, the days of the MLB are here. The cleanup hitter. That's right. Our DH. Ray Hespin is in the house, <laughs> CEO, co-founder of Property Made, Property Made, uh, PropertyMeld.com. Um, welcome to, to Office Hours, Ray. We're going to shift a little gears uh, from uh, a, a very challenging issue to one that's more profitable for all. And <clears throat> property Meld uh, is the leading provider of property maintenance software um, with over 650 customers amazing what was a half a million or more rental units covered in North America alone. It seems like to me, you know, when we have these type of powerful software that we look at some of the more historical, traditional businesses like rental units and within the context of these plumbing, contracting, rental units, uh, that there's huge opportunity if we can find out how to utilize technology in order to create uh, you know, some sort of better systems for simple things like scheduling, billing, communication, you know, whatever it may be, uh, dispatching, uh, even ordering, scheduling, you know, whatever it may be. And you've really hit a home run uh, here, no pun intended, as a cleanup hitter uh, in the world of home maintenance. What was it that led you to see this huge void in the marketplace? And then how did you take advantage of it? So first of all, David and Michael, thanks for having me on. Uh, I appreciate the comment about the closer. The only reason I know about this is because of TV. I was atrocious at sports uh, when I was younger. And so appreciate appreciate I'm getting this validation at the right page of 37 that, that I could do Good. something on the field. Rookie. But, uh, <clears throat> but, you know, I mean, just like, you know, you guys asked the last uh, guest, uh, which was really fantastic, by the way, like how you ended up coming to be. And I think a lot of the times the world is in seeking of wanting to build something without really having a problem. And we see that going, you guys have probably downloaded apps and be like, Hey, find my parking spot. Nothing against the find my parking spot people, but it's like, you know, it's cool. It's neat. It's same technology. And then there's things that like, even this, where it's like, I want to communicate with large audiences and I keep finding hard times running to it. Somebody builds technology and like finds a way to really solve a problem. And so for us, that was kind of us, you know, we've got a giant email hanging up on our wall from like one of the, one of the firms that our co-founder actually rented from. And it is like kind of one of those things that it was our origin story that's hanging on our wall. That's like, Hey, resident, thanks for submitting this. 
uh, when after 24 hours, I want you to call this person. If you don't hear back from them in 15 minutes, call that person. Hey, person doing the work that you've got another paragraph to read. You're supposed to do this. And it read like this crazy giant if then statement. And uh, we're sitting there going like, you know, there's got to be something uh, better here. So we ended up starting Property Mail back in 2015. And, you know, really, really proud of the impact we've been able to make thus far. That's incredible, Ray. And I, I think that as someone who like most and now turning to the vast majority of Americans rent or have rented, um, dealing with property maintenance is the biggest nightmare. And what I'm wondering is when you look at the state of property maintenance, whether it is in rental units in America or anywhere in the world, because I'm sure you guys are going to go international, hopefully. Like, what is it that you're bringing to the table that differentiates you from your competitors? And and how do you give the customer's customers a better experience? Oh, man, I what a great question, Michael. And you're firing me up already. But um, <laughs> I think the big thing is there is like when we looked at doing this, and, and I'll tell you, I actually keep this next to my desk. This was the business plan of 2014. Probably like you, David and Michael, when you first were thinking about doing these great things, it all started as a stupid idea that was on a napkin. And we ended up mapping out this, like I talked about that flow chart of realizing how convoluted and messy it was. And the big thing that we learned like when doing and figuring out maintenance is like, there's multiple residents to a unit. They need to get a hold of a vendor. A property manager is the person paying the vendor. There's somebody who owns a property and kind of creates this like convoluted mess. And so like in our name, the term meld means to combine. And so you actually are taking all these stakeholders and combining them in when they need to be combined and facilitating the interactions they need to facilitate. So that's one of the unique things that we've done. Um, you know, that's why we have, you know, over a million residents using the platform. We've got around 40,000 vendor companies wow. using, and it's like uh, around 240,000 individual investors that own properties, 600 property management companies. And all those big numbers sound great, but it's really powerful when they all work together to, to create what is the right experience, the great experience for a resident. And um, you love it when you can start a business that makes people money and makes people happier. It doesn't always work that way. And so you talk about the customer's customer, um, the really cool thing that if you do maintenance really well, they renew their lease and the property is more profitable. And so it's one of those things where truly it's a win um, all across the board, um, not to be cheesy about it, but. I like it. Well, beyond uh, making one of the top best five global stakes in the world with your childhood friend there yes, <laughs> uh dave david kingman, metzler said it by the way not me yeah i did dave metzler said it <laughs> dave King, dave kingman is his childhood friend i think who you uh, co-founded the business with i don't know if yeah. you know this because i'm a big sports guy dave kingman is one of the greatest baseball players of all time <clears throat> so the analogy keeps tying in um but you know one of the things i know about this business that's important for people to know um is in this industry, whether it's, you know, the antiquated plumber, contractor, real estate industry, zero to one is way harder than one to a hundred. And you've been doing this, you know, for uh, eight years, uh, you know, 14 was when you created a business plan. You know, how long did it take, you know, one to, to you know, convince someone in this convoluted if then, 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 and if then statement world into getting your first customer and then how did it exponentially grow over the last eight years? 
So, so I'll give you that timeline, but I do got to tell you a funny story about what it takes. And if you want to know how to put your early marriage in jeopardy, um, you should run a startup and do that. Um, we actually launched our product. I did. And I, my, very much so. I about this close. So yes. It's a, you're just riding the line, right? So, uh, so we were actually, my wife and I were in the hospital for our first child. And you can imagine how, in, how much your wife probably appreciated. We had a time that we had to go live and launch. And it was two days after our unexpected early pregnancy. So I'm sitting there. My wife's very happy there seeing me get plenty of sleep, not be in pain, you know, that whole thing. And here I am on a computer typing because we got customers to support. Um, so that that was the start. But it really took a little while to kind of convince the industry that there can be a better way. And one of the hard things is, is to actually change people's perception that the problem and the way that they think of solving it doesn't have to be the way they think of solving it. And so that was hard to really shift and say, how, you know, not how do we make the old way just like a little bit better? How do you rethink the old way and just invent a new one? And so it took us probably until 2017. And, you know, when they talk about being a foot from gold, David, like I can tell you, my wife was tapping her foot. And so were a lot of other people. And it was like, I just know we're close. And we pushed through and ended up, um, you know, kind of in hindsight, sit there and go, thank Thank the Lord we just kept going. Um, but yeah, it took it took years to get. And then obviously tons of bumps and bruises along the way. I always tell people I'm like that drunk old man at the bar um, that when somebody's talking about starting a business, I'm like that cranky one that's like, you're thinking of starting a business, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I caution out of it, but. Exactly. But, man. All I do when I see someone, I'm like, I just wish that you have tons of employees and many offices and they think, oh, my God, thank you for the well wishes. I'm like, I just curse you, bro. You don't know it. First, they applaud. First, they laugh at you, scoff at you. Then they make fun of you. And eventually, if you enjoy the consistent, persistent pursuit, they will applaud you, even our wives. And they'll tell you, I told you so. And that's not the way I remember it. But more importantly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, make your head spin. Ray has been CEO, co-founder of Property Meld, uh, giving us an outline of how to be successful. Let's go find ways to either make uh, and give more of what people like or take away what they don't like. Uh, I try to simplify it for entrepreneurs. And if you can do that and articulate the quantitative value within letting people have more of what they like or taking away what they don't like, you will have a successful business. It's just amount of time and effort that you're willing to withstand. Thank goodness Ray was willing to do it. A great cleanup hitter here on Office Hours. Check out Property Meld. They will make your uh, property management easier and more profitable. Can you ask for more? I doubt it here on Office Hours. Thanks, brother. Thanks, all. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ray. I'm going to come over for a steak, by the way. Say, got uh, you. Open it by Rapid City, South Dakota. You can hit up Mountain. Oh, Street right. Oh, they got some great beef up there. I've I've sure been there. Do. Pheasant hunting. I had one of the best steaks of my life. So you have a huge advantage with the quality of meat just to start. But yes, I'm coming. Mike, you're coming. You got it? I'm there. Let's go. All right. All right. Well, Let's do it. well worth it. Thank Feel you. The PJ. It. <laughs> <laughs> He's awesome. All right. Takeaway of the day, Mike. Dude, the, the most important thing, it just keeps coming back to data. Like this word is just in my head. The data doesn't lie. Follow the truth. Don't live in the reality you want to live in. Live in the reality that you are in. I love it. And mine is awareness. I think all four of our guests, right? You can see if we elevate our awareness, 
uh, we can see things differently. We can change the way we look at things. And so, you know, podcasting, there's awareness of, of what you're doing with the community. Both of us experienced a change in our awareness of podcasting over these years. And if you put together how many episodes we've both done, there's no one in the world that's done more. I promise you more right. episodes. Uh, got him. Of course, this whole book is about awareness. Um, and that Stephen Smith, critical awareness to our best self and our health. Um, and then Ray having the awareness of from a letter he saw in the law of if, then, then that, then this, then that, and going ahead and dedicating his life to building a business to make it easier for people to do what has been done for over hundreds of years, managing properties. So congratulations to all four of our guests for having that awareness. Thank you, Michael Unbroken, for joining me at Michael Unbroken. Only the best here. I'm bringing the best with the best on office hours. Thanks for joining me. See you, my friend. I love you. See you soon. All right, everyone. We're on it. Friday is coming in two days. Get a free copy of my book. Just don't forget my email, david at dmeltzer.com. If it's free, it's me. So email me. Sorry, if it's free, it's we. So email me, david at dmeltzer.com. I want to thank Raluca for being here today. She'll be sending out to my guests, at least distributing to my team, who should follow up with each of these guests. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Raluca. Thank you, Michael Unbroken. Follow him. Uh, engage in his podcast. He's incredible, Michael Unbroken. Email me, be more interested than interesting. Email me, David Meltzer. But most importantly, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you later. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Have a good night.